Hey, we're starting a new series tonight that'll take us through the next month, and our series is studying Colossians, and so I thought it might be helpful at the onset of this series to kind of define some terms that will help us over the next four weeks, and you're not only going to hear from me, uh, but you'll get to hear from uh, Jolene and German as well in this series. Perfectly timed. Thank you for doing that. Oh, you guys, Starbucks. So here's some terms that are important for us to realize as we go into uh, our study together. So the place is uh, Colossae, or it's spelled two different ways depending on which um, historian you're reading. The people are the Colossians, and then the format of the text. At first, it really appears like it's a pastoral letter, and the case could be made that it was a pastoral letter before it wound up as part of the Bible, as a book, within 66 books, towards the second half of the Bible. But more specifically, it's a prison epistle, which means that the person writing it is in prison for religious reasons and it's, it's written as like an encouragement it, it's sent to bring kind of life and love and at times correction usually to a group of believers and so the recipients are the church or the body of local believers the gathering um, at Colossae which was the church started by Epaphras uh, who was commissioned by Paul. So Paul, unlike most of his writings, he's not writing to a church that he started. He's not even writing to a people that he's met before, but he's writing as a way to kind of steward his time in prison. He knows of these believers. Epaphras was, spoiler alert, arrested as well. So they're in prison together, and this community respects Paul, and he's doing his best to kind of encourage them on in their pursuit of Jesus. And that's where we get this letter that's now found in our Bibles. And I think it's important to note all throughout this series that the Bible is for us, right? It's a gift that we have access to, but it was not written to us. Does that make sense? We talk about this in our NLI courses, some of you guys that are in that. But the Bible is for us, but it's not written to us, which means we have the opportunity to do some work to observe and understand, to discover the meaning, what's going on, and why are things being communicated in this way before we apply it. Now, I don't know about you and your story, um, but I have a friend of mine who, who is in prison, and we do share letters back and forth. And if you picked up one of those letters, and I keep, I keep them in a file in my office, kind of our correspondence, if you looked at one of them, it'd be really hard for you to understand all the things we are talking about. You could read it and understand the words that are there, but you wouldn't understand the emotionality of the relationship. You wouldn't understand the context, the surroundings, especially if you only had one part of the letter. Like in this case, we don't have the reply from the Colossians back to Paul. We have one part of it. And so that's why it's important that on the onset and every week we'll be reminding us as a collective that are studying the scripture to really get at what did this mean to them then before we think through what does it mean for us now. Does that make sense? Are you still with me? Yeah. I want to pray uh, over our time together tonight, and then we're going to read through uh, chapter one. It'll take about six minutes, but bear with me. I promise it's worth it. Jesus, I pray that as we open up uh, this letter, that you would help us to engage with it well, help us to read scripture in, in a way to understand who you are and how to look more like you. And God, I just pray that as we, we learn about you, um, God, that that would translate into us continually being changed by the power of your spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So it'll be on the screens, and I'm turning over in my Bible app right now. Since it is a chunk of text, like I said, it'll take about six minutes to read through from start to finish, 29 verses. 
These verses and chapters weren't originally there. They were added later by translators to help congregations or gatherings to be able to talk specifically about a few things in depth. It might be helpful if you turn over to the NIV. If you're in an app, it will make it easier to follow along as that's what I'm reading from. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and all the love you have for all of God's people, the faith and love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that's come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and it's growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Verse 7, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of the light. For he has rescued us from the dominion or the kingdom of darkness, and he's brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, he's the beginning and the firstborn among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, him being Jesus, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, in the good news. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Verse 24, we're almost there. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Whoa, metaphors. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present you to the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Verse 27, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles and non-Jewish people the glorious riches of this mystery, and this is what the mystery is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, 
so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Deep breath, we made it. Six minutes later, we've read a fourth of this letter. Don't worry, we'll save some for the next few weeks. Tonight, over the next 15 minutes or so, I want us to focus on three sections of this first chapter. We won't go through every verse and every word, but we're going to focus on three sections. And if you're taking notes, this will kind of help you outline kind of our conversation tonight. The first thing we're going to look at is Paul's first prayer. It's in verses three through five, three verses long. The second thing we're going to look at, and I might ask for your help in reading, we're going to look through Paul's second prayer, which we find in that first chapter, verses nine and 10. So two verses long. I'm getting shorter and shorter. Don't worry. And then we're going to talk about this poem that's kind of dropped in the middle. Uh, it's in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. You kind of notice a shift in Paul's language. It's like either or. There's contrasting and comparisons. And he's really doing so to communicate truth through art. We don't know if he wrote this poem, heard this poem, but he is sharing this poem, these six verses, 15 through 20. What I want us to learn tonight and to think about as a community is really who Paul is and maybe asking ourselves what is Paul adding to the conversation of Christian life to the believers at Colossae but what is he also in extension adding into our stories into our community into this collective gathering of believers so I'll, I would like someone to read Paul's first prayer. I'll make a few comments on it. So Colossians 1, 3 through 5. Prefer the NIV, but no judgment. If somebody could read that out, that would be really helpful. Wow, that sounded like, wow, cool. Love the CSB. Thank you, Holman Publishing. So if you look it on the screen or in your app or your Bibles, it seems at first glance that Paul is using a lot of words and commas to make a very simple point. I'm thankful for you. I've heard you love Jesus. That's great. Like that's how he could have summed it up. He could have said it that way. But it's important to realize that he is doing this intentionally. He is opening all of his letters in a similar fashion. In the first few verses, we see greetings, and then we usually see him move in to a posture of prayer and of worship. What I like about this is that Paul is praying about people. They're the focus, but they're not the focal point. In other words, Paul is spending a lot of time reflecting on the multi-dimensional reality of who God is. He's saying, God, the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, God's people, the message of the gospel. Like He's not just saying these buzzwords um, to kind of fill up space in that paper that you have due tomorrow. He's trying to remind himself. He's trying to enter into a space mentally 
who God is. He's both looking at the reality of the circumstance, but then allowing his theological imagination to remember, I'm going to reflect on multiple names of God because of how great and majestic and amazing he is. Like, he didn't need to say, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like, we we'd kind of already understood there's Father, there's Jesus, he likes both. But he's taking his time because in his prayers, he's revealing to us something that he believes. He believes that it's important to not only pray specifically about something, a need, a concern, we call that supplication, but he's also reflecting on the different ways God has shown up and could show up in a given situation. So he's not lessening his circumstances. He's not freaking out about his circumstances. He's being honest with them. But to that honesty, he's engaging in kind of this theological exercise where he's rehearsing and reminding himself of who God is and who God might be in this situation. Does that make sense? He's not trying to speak uh, as quickly as possible. He's trying to speak as weighty, as heavy as possible. And not heavy as in condemnation, but kind of inviting us into a journey. It reminds me of something that Dallas Willard says, and I'm going to quote him every sermon the rest of the year. Uh, he says this, we shouldn't count Christians, we should weigh them. And he's talking about this idea that there should be some level of depth, some reserve of character, some, uh, some gravitas to how we follow Jesus and interact with people around us. That we're not just trying to add numbers, but we're trying to grow. And so that's what Dallas means when he says that. Let's see what happens in the second prayer. So this is Colossians 1, 9, and 10. Can somebody else read that for me? You did good, Luke, but I'm going to spread the love. Oh, my gosh. So he could have said, hey, you're in my prayer calendar, been thinking about you. But instead, he is specifically contending, he is interceding on somebody's behalf. And I can't think of a prayer that I would want prayed over me more than this prayer. He's saying, one, I'm praying for you often. I'm praying for you so much, the only time I can think about stopping is that I haven't stopped. I'm consistently fighting for you, even though I've never met you and never seen you. And then what is he asking? He's not asking for blessing. He's not asking for comfort. He's not asking in generality. He's saying he's asking what he believes is God's best for somebody. He's asking that God would fill these people with the knowledge of God's will through the wisdom and understanding, not Paul's wisdom and understanding, not the wisdom and understanding of Epaphras, not self-wisdom or self-reflected understanding, but spirit-given wisdom and understanding. Why? There's a purpose behind that. Verse 10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. He's saying that the goal that we all have across these pockets of believers, in this case, this Gentile non-Jewish group of believers at Colossae, he's saying that, you know what, our goal is the same, that we'd live a life worthy of the Lord. Our goal is to please him, but he's providing instruction in the prayer. How do you please God? How do you live a life worthy? Well, you need God's help to do it. He's saying, 
Christianity, following Jesus, being a part of the way, trusting Jesus as rabbi, is not about growing into an awareness of new levels of self-control or willpower. He's saying we need a deposit from the Spirit to give us wisdom and understanding to live in a way that would please and honor God. He's saying you can't do God things without God's help. And I love that in this prayer, there's specificity both in where he wants them to go and grow, but also in how he thinks the Spirit would lead him there. His prayers, clearly as we read them, this isn't the first time he's prayed these things over this group of believers. This is an overflow of his daily habits and rhythms, and he's giving them a window. He's giving us a window into his prayer life, into his worship life. So my thesis, if I had one tonight, would be this. Paul's greatest contributions to the church at Colossae and to us are his life of prayer and worship. It's easy to reduce Paul to a great thinker, and he was. Especially in Romans, we think maybe he just liked to write doctrine. Instead, he's personally engaging with Jesus and then letting that personally drive his relationships with others. The greatest gift that we get from the life of Paul isn't his mind, but his mind submitted to Christ. It isn't his actions, it's how he responded in daily life to God. All right, let's get to the poem, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I invite you to close your eyes. It doesn't work with all poetry, but I think it works with this one if I prayed right. That was a joke. So 15 through 20. Closing your eyes might be helpful. We're not reading a historical account. This is not a not yet systematized theology that we're supposed to create doctrinal statements. This is poetry to express a truth that would resonate in the heart's soul and mind of the original readers. Paul says this, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on heaven or on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's important to realize, you can open your eyes now, the magic's done. It's important to realize that for the original hearers or readers of this letter, they're recognizing themes from Genesis, Exodus, and Isaiah when they read this. He's, he's calling back in their religious memory to help their religious imagination grow. He's calling back to familiar themes to take them somewhere new. Clearly, because he's speaking so eloquently about the supremacy of Christ, there was a concern that the believers that were reading this were letting go of that truth. That they valued Jesus, they wanted to live a life worthy, but he sees a need to remind them of the basics. 
to not forget about this. He uses words like holding on to this hope. I did this project in undergrad many, many years ago. Uh, it was one of my capstones for religious studies, and it was a seminar-style class. Uh, I preferred lectures because you don't, they don't know if you don't do the reading. But I was in a seminar. I had to do the reading. There was like five of us. And one of my projects was, it wasn't about this passage. That'd be pretty cool. Um, but it was really about how we engage with different mediums of communication. So there was this like religious text. I can't remember from what tradition it was from. So I kind of like printed it out, like just typed it up. And then I had a friend come and, and sing the text. I created a short film that was like a multimedia experience related to the text. I had somebody come and perform it like it was an open mic slam poetry. And then I think I had somebody like design something visually that was still not moving. And then the question that I was posing is, does the way we communicate something change what we're communicating? All the words were the same. The themes were similar, but we approach music criticism different than literature criticism. We approach different disciplines with different tools that those fields have deemed valuable. And so what we're really saying is like, what is the essence of something and how does our communication, how does our, our delivery of that end up changing it. That's why it's so important to pay attention to how Paul prays. It's important to note that he does pray, but how he prays gives us a snapshot into how he views God and the world around him. He doesn't minimize his problem. He doesn't tell people to ignore things that are difficult in this writing or in others, but he makes sure that he brings the size of God in his mind to as big or larger than the size of the issue he's praying about. Now, to be honest, I don't always do that. And I've read every prayer request that's ever been in a bucket. You guys don't always do that, right? I can be so focused on supplication that I'll have a list of things that I want God to do, but I haven't taken any time to recognize who God is. It's been put like this. Well, sometimes we can become so fascinated or so set on what God's hands would produce that we haven't caught a glimpse of his face. I love what Paul does here. He doesn't tell us to dismiss or let go of our earthly concerns. No, he's praying, he's contending that there would be growth spiritually and that fruit would come to be, uh, to be alive because of the gospel in people's lives. But he's also doing so in a way that reminds him and the readers how he views God. Because our prayers both tell us what we think and then cause us to think a certain way. Okay, I need four volunteers, real quick. I'm not going to make you pray in front of everybody and then critique your prayers. That was an idea I had. I tossed it out. I need four volunteers, just for an illustration, four people. Come on up. Come on up. You have to be quiet, though. That's the only thing. I just need to use you as a model, as a body. One, two, three. So I have three. That's not four. Hannah, you, the Lord is calling you. Great. Take your time. Just kidding. You already are. Come up here. Okay. Just, this is... This, is, this helped me. Maybe it will help you. Okay? So um, what we read in the first two prayers is this, is that Paul is praying about complex situations to a multifaceted God. Okay? So, um, so I'll, I'll, you'll be Paul. Okay? So you're praying about complex situations to a multifaceted God. You're just standing here. It's just visual, right? So you don't have to, like, actually pray. Okay? So you're, you're kind of equal, right? You have complex things in your life. 
but you also are viewing God not just through one lens, but you're with your theological imagination like Paul, referring to different parts of his character, okay? So this is like the ideal prayer. Hannah slash Paul, first 15 verses, okay? It wasn't her, it was Christ, just kidding. Um, and then Taylor is here, and Taylor is praying about complex, I'm using this as like a sign for complex, horizontal, right? Complex problems, but she's referring to God with one dimension, okay? So she's not there, she's here. Does that make sense? You guys with me? Okay, this was maybe a good idea. And then um, Luke is here, hopefully four is the right number. Luke is here, right? And so over here, complex prayers, multifaceted God, complex situations, single dimension God. So it's going to be the flip over here. You have simple situations that you're praying about. Thank you, that did help. To a multidimensional God, okay? And then over here, it's, the, it's, it's I'm sorry, it's the worst, um, but it's where most of us live our prayer life. We bring simple problems to a one-dimensional picture of God. So Paul's over here, and his life speaks for itself, but his prayers are vibrant because his view of God is always being refreshed in his spiritual memory. He's doing that on purpose. This is good. Most of us in this room pray like this. We only bring our surface stuff to God because we see him as one-dimensional. So we aren't real about what our problems are, and we don't have someone to fix it. That's not fun. That's not good, but we live that way. Over here, remind me what you were again? Simple, simple witch. Yeah. yeah, simple situations. Multidimensional God. Yeah. When you do that, it feels good in a worship service, okay. but then when you live in your problems tomorrow, apart from the emotional experience, you're empty. Over here, that's a mic stand. That's nobody praying. Um, tell me what you are again. That's why I need help. Um, One-dimensional God. Yeah. Some of us get here after being here, and then we are, like, disappointed, and so we never press on to here. Because we're like, oh, wow, yeah, multidimensional God. This is, that, that's what you are, right? Multidim yeah, you're like, whoa, this is great. This, this is awesome. One dimensional, complex problems. Thank you for that correction. So you've got real stuff, right? You've deconstructed some of your faith. You've realized that the world is full of suffering. You're experiencing part of it. But because, you, because when your problems got upgraded, you never upgraded your vision of God, you don't get here, and this is where delight and power is. This is where, like, religious attendance is, light participation. This is, this is its own problem to itself. And then this is just bad. Okay, you guys can sit down. You guys did okay. <laughs> Here's what's important. We can get this from a chronological reading of chapter one, because at the end of chapter one, which I'm not covering, we realize that Paul is suffering. If you think prisons are bad now, they're worse then. And he's kind of making this metaphor like, it's bad for my body, but it's good for the body of Jesus, which is the church. He's basically saying, it's better me in here than you, and I can encourage you from here. So what we learn from the chronology of chapter 1 and through the life of Paul is that worship precedes suffering well. Now, much like if there was a storm and you were in a boat and they got capsized and you had to swim for your life, it would be helpful if you had taken swim lessons like 10 years before that moment. 
So it is true that we should worship through the storm, that we should trust God in it, but if we don't have a habit of worship before the storm, we might not have a worship life strong enough to get us through the storm. Paul's life and his writings are telling us, you might be drawn to the end of chapter 1 where he's suffering well and he seems to be this great picture, the best outside of Jesus for suffering well, but he's saying it's not about just like standing firm in my own strength, it's because I've developed a habit, a consistency. One of my mentors, Frank, says it like this, that Paul is always content yet contending. He's content with where he is, but he's always contending. Get this, he's content in his circumstances, he's always contending for more of Jesus. But my life is sometimes the opposite. I'm content with where I am with Jesus, and I'm contending for more things. That's why Paul and I's life looks different. Because he's content in the right places and contending in the right places, if that makes sense. Another way you could think about it is like this. Effective witness requires intentional worship. If worship or witness with God doesn't inform our witness, if we're stronger at our horizontal relationships with others than our vertical relationship with God, our efforts will not produce fruit that lasts. Our efforts will be well-intentioned but will not be um, fruitful, will not bring multiplication. Does that make sense? that the level of our ability to be in collaboration with the Spirit out there has a lot to do with what we're allowing the Spirit to do in here, in our inner life. And there is a way to minister out there without letting the Holy Spirit minister in here, and that's what leads to burnout. That's what leads to disillusionment. When we're doing more for God than letting Him do things in us. So this leads us to kind of our last takeaway And it's this, the primary expression of our life must be prayer and worship. It was the primary expression in the life of Jesus. It's the primary expression in the life of Paul. And it's supposed to be our primary expression. It doesn't mean we don't do things beyond that or after that, but that our foundation must be strong in prayer and worship. That if we aren't people of prayer and people of worship, we won't be people of substance that are people of mission. We'll do mission with temporary results, and we'll do mission in a way that's out of our own strength unless we first establish ourselves as people of prayer and people of worship. What we want to do in our table discussions tonight is to kind of do a little bit of what Paul was doing. He was remembering rehearsing, relearning how big God was regardless of the size of his circumstances. So here's what we'll do in our table discussion for the next five minutes. We're going to talk about God movements, and let me do some defining of terms. God movements are times when God shows up in a moment and does something that could have an impact beyond the momentary through community, through his Holy Spirit, directly through our devotional life. So the question is, let's take a moment and identify one to two specific God movements from this semester at our tables. And before you do that, I want to I kind of lean into why I think there's a difference. A God moment happens to us. A God movement is our response to a God moment that has a longer impact. Anybody can fall into a God moment because it's him showing up. The real test of maturity is would we steward or manage or respond or react to the God moment where it creates a stream of movement in our life that lasts beyond that moment. Does that make sense? So we'll assume that we're all looking for God movements. We're not satisfied with God moments. 
and at our tables, let's discuss for the next five minutes one or two specific ways you saw God move in your life this semester. Go for it. Yeah, love to, I don't have time to ask everybody to kind of share, uh, but I, I do want to do it this way. Um, I thought it'd be interesting. If you, if your God movement was related to community, I just want you to raise your hand. Okay? Yeah, it's really interesting. If your God movement was related to like the Holy Spirit specifically speaking to you, you don't have to feel weird about that. That's true. I, wow, somebody put up hands for both. God has been moving. That's awesome. Okay? What about like from your devotional life specifically, from a text you read? Yep, thank you, Grace. I see that hand. The Lord sees that hand. See that hand. See that hand. See that. Sorry. <laughs> What's great about thinking of God and his multidimensional attributes is that there's multiple pathways to seeing God movements. Just because we tend to see him in one way doesn't mean we can't learn to see him in multiple ways. In other, way, in other words, there's always more graces to be had. Regardless of your season or situation, there's always more graces that you can gather so that you can see God and enjoy him. As Natalie and the band comes up uh, for our response, uh, I want to just say a few things to kind of frame us up and kind of explain a few things of, that we've been doing. One of the reasons that we have like a concentrated response, um, typically in song, after a sermon, isn't because we like to just like bookend our times with singing because it's fun. It's because we really believe that teaching or preaching is never for applause, but it's for application. In other words, we talk about the truth so that we can live out the truth. We talk about the spirit so that we can live in the spirit. We talk about God so that we can live with God. It's a both and, it's not an either or. And we've been talking a lot as a team about the differences in the types of responses. Sometimes the, the response is, feels like almost like a lab. Like last week, we talked about prayer for 30 minutes, and then we spent time praying, like a lecture lab style. Sometimes it's very individual. Sometimes it's very collective. Sometimes it's focused internally. Sometimes it's focused outwardly or externally. The themes that typically keep repeating are, are, are a theme of reflection or it being reflective, uh, in contrast to be demonstrative or kind of like, we're, we're, we're declarative, we're declaring something. And we think it's important to not just find ourselves doing one thing the same way all the time, but to engage with God in new ways. And to do so kind of collectively together. So tonight our, our response may seem a little different than normal in that it's not reflective and it's not find someone to pray with, those are good things, but it's demonstrative. It's like as we sing this song together to close out our gathering tonight. Let us not just see the words and read the words, but pray out the words. And, and, and just to be honest, um, it's, it's pretty easy to declare God's goodness when you're like in a season of favor. Like, it's like kind of cool story, bro. Your life's good. You're saying God is good. End of the story. But God, throughout the history of scripture, gets a unique type of glory when things aren't good, yet we see above and beyond that and declare his goodness. It doesn't mean that we're trying to forget what's going on or that it's not important, but we're reminding ourselves that there's always two important realities, what we're experiencing and what we know because the hope of Christ is in us, where we're at and who he is, what we feel or what our experiences are, and what we know his character and his history to be. It's also one of the reasons 
that maybe you've caught on to it a little bit is we've been talking about our, our time together on Thursdays as, as a gathering. We've used words previously like a meeting or a service. Those things aren't bad, but for us, we're finding in this season that a gathering really for me connotates coming and bringing and that we're coming to our thing. You're not coming to my thing or their thing. It's, it's a collective ownership. It's collective participation. Because meetings can typically be one-sided and, and services feel very uh, programmatic and there's places for that. But for us in this season, for our ministry, we're like, what does it mean to gather together? Paul writes in another place in the New Testament that as believers gather, one, that they shouldn't ever stop that. Two, they should do it to stir up good deeds of love. And three, that when you come together, you should bring something or someone with you. You should bring someone that you hope to encounter Jesus with and you should bring, in Paul's words, a psalm, a prayer, or a blessing, which reminds me that we don't gather just to eat food that one person prepares, but we gather to eat food that everyone prepares. It's like a spiritual potluck. That's a picture of the early church. It's not thinking one person has the answers. It's saying we all have a unique perspective on the truth and beauty of God, and how do we let that inform our collective experience of who he is? It's not assuming that we're all at the same place with Jesus, that we're all in the same level of study or familiarity with the text, but it is saying that because we're made in the image of God, that we can bring something to the table that may help somebody else's faith story. It's why our time tomorrow at Dive Deep, it, our goal is extended prayer and worship, not extended singing. There will be singing. It will be longer than normal. But that's a means to an end. The goal is that we sing more songs than normal. Like, guys, we sang 11. Woo! Usually do four. Let's feel good about ourselves. No, the idea is an unhurried time of prayer and worship, of contending for more, for ourselves, for those that we're close to that might be far from God, and for the campuses that we hope to reach and impact. And here's the crossroads that many of us are at tonight. Many of us are trying to get more out of the little time we give to God instead of going from giving him a little time to more time leading to a lot of time. Some of us are trying to maximize our efficiency of our devotional life to get more out of little. And God is saying, I don't want to put a huge thing on a small plate. I want to put a huge thing on a huge plate. But because we're so caught up in achievement and productivity, we're like, man, if I could just get the right tools or the right passage or, or the right Bible plan, then I could get more out of this. And he's saying, I want more of you. He's saying, I don't just want you to get more out of the word. I want more of you. And he wants more of us so that we could mature in him and that we could enter a season shifting from duty and obligation to delight and enjoyment. And Paul teaches us this. He creatively uses his prayers, his writings, this poetry to speak beyond just a list of attributes of God, but to give us a beautiful picture, an image of who God is for Paul and who God might be for us. Why don't you stand with me as you're able? And, and I want to pray in this time of of being demonstrative, of being declarative, because that's what Paul was doing. He was recognizing his situation, recognizing the situation of this group of Gentile believers, but he didn't stop at recognition. He didn't seep into just being introspective. He said, I'm going to use this to declare who God is. Introspection is good. Writing in your prayer journal is great. I'm a huge advocate of that. 
But sometimes we don't have the wisdom or enough of the spirit in ourselves for us in our journal to get through a problem in our life. Sometimes writing alone in our journal doesn't cut it when we experience suffering. Sometimes we have to declare with our words things we may not see or feel yet because Isaiah tells us that it's our spiritual eyes that see in faith so that we could experience a new reality. So I'm not saying to pretend, but I'm saying to imagine greater. God, I pray that as we pray these words, as we declare, as we with demonstration remember and rehearse and relearn and re-engage with your faithfulness. God, that we would see you clearly, that we would understand that you're meeting us. And God, that we would just get a glimpse of the vastness of your faithfulness and consistency in our stories. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.